side note of how I know Matt, uh, Matt and I have known each other for a few years now, mm -hmm. and he has been a huge blessing in my life and a huge, huge push for me um, as, as I walk with Christ. And uh, I'm excited that, that he is here this morning. I'm excited that he's getting to share with us out of Revelation. And um, so welcome, Matt Sharp. Well, good morning, Monsieur Day Church. How are you doing? Oh, a church that responds. Praise God. That's amazing. I'm not saying my church doesn't respond. I'm just saying you guys respond, and that's, that's a beautiful thing. Well, first of all, just let me start by saying it is a huge uh, blessing and honor for me to be here. I know that uh, Paul does not hand his pulpit over lightly to people, so it's a huge blessing for me to be here. And also, I know that Missio Day has a high value on the Word of God. I know that simply when I got my order of worship and there was an hour for me to preach. It's like, yes! That is so cool. So it's uh, an honor for me to be here. I, I pray that it will be a blessing for you as well. I bring you greetings from Peace Community Church and a belated happy birthday. Happy fifth birthday, Miss Day. Very cool stuff. And uh, it's just a real thrill for me to be here. And I'm very grateful. And thank you, Nathan or, or Todd or whoever um, arranged for me to be here that, that they did not ask me to write my own introduction I really detest doing that, and so usually I make it completely bogus and just see how long it'll, it'll go before they notice it. Uh, one poor girl who was introducing me for an event, she got to the point where I had won um, an Olympic gold medal in curling and stopped right before I was the founder of the Amateur Phlebotomy Society. Um, I have no idea what phlebotomy is, but it just sounded really cool and it's fun to spell. So I just kind of put all that in there. She's like, and we'll just let him come up. So thank you for letting me take just a moment to introduce myself. I am, I believe, at a present, I think I'm the pastor of youth and discipleship. My job title changes from time to time at Peace Community Church. I've been there five years. I am a child of God. I am a husband, a father, and a pastor in that order. And it's just a thrill to be here with you guys. We're going to dig into Revelation. Are you guys ready for this? Uh, and really, as we get into this, I need to lay a little bit of groundwork, in part because um, obviously this is the first time I've been here preaching in this series, and in part because I know that you guys have done the seven churches. You know, last week I think you had the church that made God want to hurl, Laodicea. Yes! And this morning we're going we're gonna to change. There's a break in the story and things change, so we need to lay a little bit of groundwork before we get into that. And in general... Because the stuff we're going to get into today is very polarizing. Revelation is a polarizing book. I remember I was asked once at a, at a party that I was at, I met like a friend of a friend, and the first thing he, found, he said when he found out that, that I was a pastor was, why don't more churches preach Revelation? It's like, nice to meet you too. Wow. But my response was, was honest, that I think most Christian churches and most Christians avoid the book of Revelation um, most churches, I think, avoid preaching it because many pastors are chicken, in my honest opinion, um, because there's so many crazy images and there's things that are divisive, and, it, and as soon as you start talking about Revelation, you have to start asking questions like, well, are we premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial, and if we're premillennial, are we pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and there's all these terms, and there's all this stuff that polarizes people about Revelation, so the tendency is for some people just to avoid it completely. And so I, I just, again, give you a, a blessing and, a, and props for going past the book of Laodicea, or the church of Laodicea, because most churches, if we touch Revelation, we stop right at the seven churches. Like, that's our, our safe zone. That's our comfortable place right there. And then we skip to the end where Jesus wins. But all the stuff in the middle, we, ju we just tend to avoid because it's, it's, it's strange and polarizing, and there's, it's kind of like the Twilight Zone meets a Godzilla movie with the Matrix kind of all, all blended together, and 
it's confusing, and so we just tend to avoid it. And so I just give you tremendous props for going past the comfort zone in Revelation, if there is such a thing. And as we get into this, um, a couple of words uh, just as, as we deal with, with our approach to Revelation. Generally speaking, there are two errors that Christians make once we get past the point of Laodicea. Uh, the first error that people make, uh, we, we tend to, I would call it the newspaper theology. There is the error where people will look at Revelation, they will look at the symbolism in Revelation, and they'll kind of sit there and then they'll pull out a newspaper or CNN and they'll try to find these parallels and comparisons. And that's kind of the way that they interpret it, where they, they take you know, the world around us and use that to gain understanding from Scripture rather than using Scripture to give an understanding to the world around us. And inevitably, my friends, if we use that approach, when people get hung up on what does this symbol in Revelation mean, almost inevitably we lead ourselves to date setting. Have you guys heard this? You know, we, we've been studying the signs, and therefore we believe Jesus is coming back in this date. The most recent one, I don't know if you guys have heard this, the most recent one was uh, Harold Camping, our, our friend. Uh, he, he was a Reformed guy for a while, but he actually... Uh, he actually set the date for last year, uh, May 21st, I think it was. I remember it because uh, I actually had a paper due on eschatology that day. I thought that was somewhat ironic. I was like, well, if I get a grade, I guess he was wrong. But, you know, he, he had said that he's been studying Revelation, and again, he has all these signs. He's been looking at all these world events and pulled it all together and found this date, and there it is. And then May 22nd rolled around, and we all went, hmm, guess not. And if you are familiar with the story, you know that there was a guy who spent basically his entire life savings. He had heard th this teaching and studied the Bible and thought he was, you know, this guy was right. And this dude, he invested his entire life savings, all of his wealth, and put up the billboards that were everywhere. I don't know if you guys, I think there was a couple in Chicago. I know I've seen pictures of them in L.A. and Seattle and New York and other places. Jesus is coming back May 21st. Be ready. And I know there's a lot of news coverage of this guy who believed it. And then May 21st rolls around, and he's just kind of sitting there reading his Bible, and there's nothing, and then what? And it's easy for me to start throwing the theological stones, like, you know, dude, didn't you read Acts, you know, where Jesus said, you know, no one will know the times and days that the Father is fixed by his own authority? It'd be easy to throw stones, right? I always encourage people, before you do that, just consider this. That man's theology was very misguided, but his response to that theology was correct. If we truly believe Jesus is coming back, when was the last time any of us risked our entire life and staked our entire reputation on it? The sad part is we don't know. It could be tomorrow. I'm betting on tomorrow. So what are we doing about that? So wrong theology, right response. But again, he had this newspaper theology approach. And so that's kind of the, the wrong way to approach the symbolism of Revelation is to try to find these one-to-one -one parallels. Like the beast coming out of the sea means this. The guy with the ten heads is that and then try to find this, these connections in the world around us. I think that, that kind of misses the point. But, my friends, we also have another error that we can stray into when it comes to Revelation. We can stray into what typically is our response in the Reformed community, and that's the avoidance theology, where we kind of take the approach of there's differing opinions, and we don't know exactly what to make of it, so we're just going to leave it alone. We'll focus on the things we can agree on. We're not going to talk about Revelation. We're not going to talk about eschatology and the end times. We're going to talk about Jesus. We can talk about Jesus. We all like Jesus. Let's talk about him and just kind of stop before the end. That's avoidance theology, my friends, and I think it's wrong. 
Um, our mutual friend, Vody Bacham, I was listening to a sermon of his, and he said it well when he was talking about people who use avoidance theology. He said, it's kind of like, you know, imagine a police officer who comes upon the scene of an accident. And there, at the accident, he goes around, he talks to some of the witnesses, and he talks to three, four, five different witnesses, and each witness gives the police officer a different, or in some cases, contradictory story about the accident. If that police officer says, oh, you know what, all these differing opinions, all these different stories and perspectives, there must not have been an accident. We're just going to go do something else. I mean, that would be foolish. It would be a horrible thing for any police officer to do unless you're the one responsible for the accident. Then you're like, yes. But no, I mean, we would expect that a police officer would do his job. He would investigate the evidence in front of him. He would go and look at the crash and study the track marks and do all those other things and basically would use the evidence and the stories to kind of understand what really happened. And my friends, that's what we want to do today. We want to look directly at the evidence. We want to look at the text. That's the thing that we have in front of us. We're going to kind of jump into it. We're going to go off the cliff, take a plunge, and see some fun stuff today. Yes. Two more words of encouragement slash warning. Generally speaking, for us as New Testament American believers, one of the reasons why we don't understand a lot of the symbolism in Revelation, frankly, is because we don't know our Old Testament very well. There's actually not as much new information that Jesus is revealing to John in this story. A lot of it comes from Old Testament references that a church in the first century who had Jewish believers there would go, I got this, I know what it means. You know, for example, uh, in this chapter in Revelation 4, you're going to read about how there's a glassy sea or a sea of crystal in front of the throne of God. And we go, what is that? And people have tried to figure out what is the symbolism of that. And Well, part of what we know is that in the temple, in the Old Testament, they had a replica of that. God told Moses and Solomon to make basically a big pool that was made out of mirrors. So it was like a reflecting pool. And that's where the priests would go and clean themselves. And so, and actually, the more we study things like the Old Testament, like the temple and the tabernacle, the images of heaven start to seem much more familiar because the temple was actually, and the tabernacle were actually replicas that God gave of what his throne room looked like. And again, all throughout the Old Testament, books like Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, parts of Isaiah, all of those things have images that are drawn into the book of Revelation. So one of the reasons for us that we read it and go, that seems weird, is generally we're not good enough students of the Old Testament. So that's just an encouragement. And honestly, a fun way to study the Old Testament for me is to study Revelation and go back and figure out what it means. You know, figure out where it came from in the OT. So it's just kind of fun. So a word of encouragement. If you really want to understand Revelation, study your Old Testament. You'll find a lot of it there. And then last, just a general encouragement. If you are looking to this sermon to give you like the, um, the Revelation symbolism decoder pin, that then you can go home and go, I get it now. You're, you're in the wrong shop. I'm sorry, this is not the right place where you're going to get all the symbols explained. Simply because nobody knows. I mean, seriously, Grant Osborne, who was a professor at the Trinity Evangelical, he wrote the, the Baker Exegetical Commentary on Revelation, brilliant man, and he said it well, just to paraphrase him, he said, we're not going to understand what the symbols point to until Jesus comes back. 
we can have a good guess, but we're not going to know how Jesus fulfills the book of Revelation until we're talking to Jesus face to face. That's, that's just the way it is. And even, again, in the book of Revelation chapter 4, where we're going to be in today, the very first verse in, in, in verse 1, it talks about there's a door standing open. Oh, well, what's that mean? And I seriously, I pulled out a commentary that has like the, the, the old stuff from like the church fathers. These are guys who lived in like 200 to 400 A.D. They're a lot closer to Jesus than we were chronologically. We're like 2,000 years later. And I, I was just reading through, okay, what's the door? And the first guy that I read, a little paragraph, says the door represents Jesus. I'm like, yes, that makes sense. Okay, because Jesus, he said, you know, in John 10, he said, I am the gate. Oh, door, gate, got it. He said in John 14, I am the way, the way, access. Yeah, cool. You know, Romans 6, we see that Jesus is the access to the Father. Okay, so Jesus is the door. Great. All in favor, that's a good interpretation. Yay! The very next paragraph from a different guy says, no, the door represents the New Testament. What? Because we don't understand, we don't have access to the Old Testament until the New Testament showed up and we have Jesus to go back to the Old Testament and understand it. And then you read Ephesians 3 and it's just like, okay, so um, the manifold witness of, of God is being made known through the church and I guess that makes sense too. Or, or you read someone else who says, no, it's just a door. You know, John basically got the backstage pass to heaven and you got to go through a door. You got to get there somehow, so there's a door. I'm like, I don't know. And a lot of these symbols, you know, you, you'll hear me explain what I think a couple of them are, but only as they are important to the whole story. A lot of people get hung up on what the individual symbols mean. And if you're looking for me to tell you, wrong sermon. If we get hung up on the individual symbols, we miss the context of the whole book of Revelation. Jesus did not give us this book so that it's like this puzzle we have to try to figure out and try to like, you know, it's like some national treasure movie, try to like understand how it all comes together and then it all clicks and we get it. Jesus wrote this book for a reason. So let me give you just a little bit of context so you understand it. As you guys probably undoubtedly have heard in the first three chapters of Revelation, John is in prison on the island of Patmos because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he's there, Jesus shows up and dictates these seven letters to seven churches. And the one thing that all these churches have in common is that they're screwed up, mainly because they have people there, like us. Amen? Miss you today is a great church, but you guys are screwed up. And I know that because I go to Peace Community Church, and we're screwed up too. And so we all need that letter from Jesus to show up. And so, I mean, I won't get into how cool that must have been to be, you know, John, and there's Jesus showing up and starts dictating, and John's taking notes like crazy. Got it. Okay, yeah, got it. Yeah, but the reason that Jesus inspired those letters was because those seven churches either were being persecuted or they were about to be persecuted. That's what we need to understand as we get into the book of Revelation. The whole book, the seven letters, everything that follows from chapter 4 to the end, all of it was written by Jesus, dictated, shown to John through Jesus, so that it could go to churches that were going to be persecuted. The point of Revelation was so that Jesus could fortify the Christians, so he could strengthen them and encourage them, so that when the persecution came, they would be ready. And so everything we do when we put together the pieces of Revelation, we need to keep that in mind, that it's all about Jesus equipping the churches that are about to be persecuted, to the Christians who are about to be attacked, so that they're ready 
That's why this book was written. All right, I think we've laid enough groundwork. Are you guys ready to jump off the cliff? Oh, man, we're going to have some fun. Revelation chapter 4, please, page uh, 1030. I think if you're using one of the Bibles, that's, uh, see, I, I'm wired to say pews just because that's what we have. In, the, in the, the, the pews, which is great if you've not grown up in the church and someone says, hey, go sit in your pew. That doesn't sound Christian. But anyway, we're going to dig in. We're going to read through Revelation chapter 4. And what I want you to understand, it gets lost in the English, is that from verse 2 to the end is all one sentence. It is all one sentence. And you can kind of read as we go through that. It really is like John is just sitting there, and he's in the throne room. He's just kind of looking around going, look at that. Oh, look at me. I heard this. And it's just like this, this excited, you know, mind-blowing experience that John is trying to condense down into human language. And I feel so bad for John. I mean, he sees God on the throne, and the only thing he can compare it to is a rock. He's like Jasper. Oh, no, Carnelian. Oh, I would be so frustrated. I mean, I have a tough time talking on a good day. I can't imagine what it would be like to, you know, capture the essence of the infinite God down into language that we can communicate. What a beautiful frustration that must have been. But you can just read how excited John is and just how blown away he is by what he encounters. And it says this, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Just a word for you. Um, beginning of chapter 4, and this is just kind of like a navigation tool as you're going through Revelation. Revelation 4.1 starts with after this, and the Greek is called metatauta. And that, that phrase occurs, okay, see, see how good you are. How many times do you think that phrase might occur in the book of Revelation? Seven? Yes, seven. <laughs> if in doubt, when anyone asks you a question about how many in Revelation, just go with seven. You know, it's like everything's in sevens. There's seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven this, seven churches. Jesus loves the number seven. And so it appears seven times in six different verses, but each time it, it means there's a change. So after this, you know, Jesus kind of dictated these letters Everything happening in chapters 1 to 3 is kind of current and present. Jesus, you know, John is on Patmos. Jesus is talking about current churches with real situations. Now there's a change in focus after this. And then again in chapter 6, it'll say after this. And then again, you know, uh, several more times throughout Revelation, after this. Each time is like there's a change in direction, a change in focus. Jesus is showing something different for a different reason. That's just kind of a navigation help as you're going through Revelation. Yeah, our chapters are things we just kind of dropped in there for our convenience, but Jesus' breaks kind of come with after this, just so you know. After this. And then now begins this one huge sentence. Verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And, the th and around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of, of glass like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures, 
full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. The fourth living creature, like an eagle. How cool is that, by the way? That's just the, that's just the throne. How cool is that? And people ask, what are the four creatures? What are the four animals? I don't know. I've studied this for a long time. I still don't know. I've heard it's like these represent the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Oh, great. These represent four angelic beings. Oh, great. These represent creation. I don't know. All we know is that they're there, and they're really cool. I'm I'm of the mindset that God would do something just for that reason. You know how cool this is? There it is. Yes. I'm cool with that. I don't know what these things are. I don't know why they're there. I just know that John saw them and he wrote about it. That's all I know. That's part of what I love about Revelation. It's kind of squishy that way. Oh, it's so cool. Anyway, moving on. And the four living creatures, uh, verse 8, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. Talk about contacts having problems. Man, if they lose a contact, I'm sorry, moving on. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Amen and amen. How cool is this? Verse 9, and whenever, by the way, and they never stop, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever. They cast their crowns before the throne, which is an act of submission, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Can I get an amen? How cool is this? Man, oh man. And I'm way behind in my notes, but that's all right. All right, guys, check this out. This is the beginning of a message that Jesus gave to these churches and to us to prepare them for persecution, to prepare them for calamity and trial and challenges and difficulties. And what's interesting to me is what Jesus did not start with. I mean, think about this. Revelation was written by John. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit, And so the same guy, inspired by the same God, also wrote the book of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Which, when you put it that way, it sounds like a Sylvester Stallone movie franchise. But anyway, but this is a guy who wrote about the love of God. John 3, 16, for God so loves the world. 1 John 4, verse 8, God is love. This is the guy that I would expect to be talking about the love of God. You know what, persecuted church, you know the challenges you're going to face? The first thing you need to know is God loves you. Amen? That'd be cool. I like hearing that when I'm going through difficulties, when the people around me say, you know what, Matt, I really do love you, and you are going to get through this. That that speaks to me. It resonates in my heart. But that is not what Jesus started with. There's no, come here, give me a hug. There's no ooey-gooey lovey anywhere in this chapter. The place where Jesus started, the first truth that he wants to use to fortify these churches that are being persecuted, the first truth, quite simply, is this. God is on the throne. Amen? God is on the throne. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he cares about you. But the reality is the first thing you need to know when we are facing the trials and the persecutions of this life is that God is there. And he is on the throne. Look at this chapter and see some of the things that are there. Right away in verse 1, 
part of what we see is that God himself, the God who is on the throne, he's the one who initiates this whole thing. He starts it all by calling John up there, by providing the means for him to get there. I don't know what it means that John was in the Spirit. Is he in his room, like, seeing things? I don't know. All I do know is that God called him. God made it possible for him to experience this. That God on the throne initiates his relationship and his conversation with us. All John had to do was go along and take notes or try. We have a God on the throne who initiates his relationship with us. And then if you look at verse 2, again, it says, with one who is, uh, excuse me, a throne stood in heaven. That's what your Bibles will say, which is correct. Um, And this is where it is fun to kind of dig into some of the languages a little bit, but part of what it says here is that there was a throne sitting on itself, which seems kind of weird to put it that way. I mean, what chair sits on itself? But again, as as we talk about this throne, we're talking about God, we're talking about his majesty, we're talking about him as the ruler. And when it says that God has a throne that sits on itself, it is a reference to the fact that our God is self-existent. Our God, his throne, his leadership, his rulership does not depend on anything else. He is not a God who is dependent. He is a God who is totally independent, self-existent, above and transcendent, above us. Amen? We as human beings, by the way, we like to pretend that we're self-existent, don't we? I always like to tell people, try it sometime. Pick any one of the following to go without air, food, or water. See how long you last. (laughs) Not long. And before we keel over from um, starvation, asphyxiation, or dehydration, ask yourself the question, where does the food, the air, and the water come from? Only God. Only God stands completely above this creation, completely independent of it. Only God is in the position where he can rule over us. Only God. Amen? And then it gets even better. In a couple of places we see this, and I'm sorry if it feels like I'm jumping around a little bit, but in part it's trying to pull thoughts out of what is for John, trying to gather all these things together as he's just recording them as he sees them. In verse 1b, the second part of verse 1, sorry, I was trained by Baptist at some point. I got to throw B's and C's and D's in there. In verse 1b, you know, again, we see this voice that says, I need to show you what will take place next. And part of what we also know from God on the throne is that God is the one who can unfold history. Our God is the one who knows the end from the beginning. Our God knows these things. And that is further explained in verse 5. One of the greatest things that we love to do is not read this verse because <laughs> it makes no sense. There are seven torches or seven lamps, seven lampstands is somewhat what some versions say. And these are the seven spirits before God's throne. Now, we believe in the Trinity, which says God is three beings and one God and one essence, and that's confusing enough, and now we're throwing the seven spirits of God in there? What? How does this function? And again, let me just share, this is why we need to know the Old Testament. Check out this verse from Zechariah. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened from sleep. And he said to me, this, this should sound familiar, by the way, um, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on top, sorry, typo, on top of it and seven lamps on it. And there's a couple other images that, that uh, Zechariah sees. And then in verse 10, it says this, these are the seven eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. 
okay? When you see the seven torches or the seven spirits or the seven lamps, anything like that, it is a reference to the fact that God has perfect understanding, perfect knowledge. God knows all history, all history, past and present and future, including yours. He knows your history. He knows what will come. Think about that for a second. God is on the throne. It means God will not be surprised what happens to you tomorrow or today. And the message of the fact that that God is on the throne communicates to the churches where, where God can say, okay, churches of Asia Minor, God is not surprised by your persecution. It didn't sneak up on them. He did not see it coming. Churches of Asia Minor, God is not surprised. And the same message comes to us. He says, Mr. Day Church, God is not surprised by the challenges that you face as a young church. He's not surprised by those challenges. He's not surprised by those obstacles. He wasn't, you know, unaware of what was going on. And for you, believer in Jesus Christ, God is not surprised by the challenges you face. He isn't. God is on the throne, and he knows all history. He knows your story from beginning to end, and he's not surprised when things happen. My friends, that is liberating for someone today. Because the non-believer, when calamity strikes, the non-believer will ask the question, God, why did this happen? But when the non-believer asks it, the non-believer is looking for a chance to accuse God of wrongdoing. The non-believer is looking for the opportunity to accuse God of getting it wrong. For us, as believers in Jesus Christ, we ask the same question. When life falls apart, when everything we hold on to is shaken, we ask the questions, God, why is this happening to me? Same question, but for us there's something very different underneath it. For us as believers, when we ask the question, when, our, when the cry of our heart is, God, why is this happening? For us, what we are truly asking is this, God, I need to know, are you still on the throne? Are you still in charge because everything around me is falling apart? And I need to know, God in heaven, that you got this. I need to know that you are on the throne. Because think about it, my friends. If we face the calamities of this life and he's not on the throne, it means we have to solve the problem. The fact that God is on the throne is a comfort and a relief for the believer. Because we don't have to fix it. We don't have to figure it out. Oh, we like to try. But it's not up to us. We just have to be faithful as we remember that he is on the throne. He knows how it's going to go. God is on the throne and he's not surprised. That, my friends, is the message that comes to the persecuted church. Oh, and it gets better. You read the rest of verse 5, and you start reading about things that are just coming from God's throne. There's flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder. What does all that mean? Simply put, my friends, God is on the throne, and this is a blatant display of his power. And it may sound cute. Oh, there's lightning. Isn't that pretty? I mean, seriously, I mean, lightning is a beautiful. Thunderstorms are beautiful to watch when you are in a very secure location. Amen? 
You ever been stuck out in the middle of nowhere and a thunderstorm pops up? That's terrifying. <laughs> there's lightning, there's hail, and there's rain and wind. And all of those things, those are the things that happen when God shows up. Every time from you know, Exodus 20, when God shows up on Mount Sinai, every time he appears, there is thick smoke and lightning and earthquakes and crazy stuff like that. And every person who comes face to face with that expects death. Every person that sees God in this condition with lightning and peals of thunder and all that other stuff, they're, they're assuming death is imminent. I'm beholding God. It's not safe for me to be here. Death must be right around the corner. God is showing himself that he knows everything. He knows all history, and he is the one that is powerful to do something. These things from God's throne are simply a reminder of the blatant displays of power that God is capable of. So to the persecuted church, he says, yes, I know, and yes, I will do something about it. That is why he starts out by saying that he is on the throne long before he gets to, oh yeah, and I love you too. God is on the throne. That is the first truth that we can draw from this passage to fortify us when we go through the crisis and the calamities of life. Amen? Oh, but wait, there's more. Because as soon as we get done seeing God on the throne, it moves right on to what do we do? From the elders to the four creatures, the, the rest of the chapter is dedicated to worship. You see, my friends, the second truth that we can draw is simply this. God is reminding, himself, uh, reminding us that he is on the throne and that he is the object of our worship. I know I'm hopefully preaching this to the choir going, yeah, we get worship, Matt, thank you. But again, bear in mind, this is the church that is being persecuted. And they're being told, first, God is on the throne. Second, he is the object of worship. That's our first step, guys. What do you do when life around you falls apart, when the calamity hits, when it seems hopeless and helpless, like everyone is out to get you? Worship. Because our tendency as human beings, and God knows this, he made us, our tendency as human beings is to be um, worshiping us. Amen? Our natural bent is to be a self-worshipper. If you ever doubt this, watch anything on cable. You know, what is reality shows? No reality I live in, but I promise you it's all about the person and showing them how great and wonderful that we should want to be like them, we should want to know what they're doing, we should basically live our lives concerned about them. Because we want to be worshipped. We want to be God. That is our natural tendency. And for me, I, it was just weird. I saw this on the news, uh, on a news feed a while ago, and it, it came back to my mind here. Uh, do you guys know Kirk Cameron, the actor? You know, he did Fireproof and Growing Pains back in the day, and you know. Well, I saw this, this thing on the news. It was, and you guys might have seen it too. It was um, Kirk Cameron, the, the, the headline was Kirk Cameron's uh, sad birthday photo. Didn't you guys see this? It was just a little blurb. One game. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. I'm not the only one who reads the news just for fun. Like, oh, look at that. <laughs> but no, in, in the picture was, you see Kirk Cameron, and there's like this little tiny cake, and there's like a couple of uh, footlongs from Subway on this table, and there's like two people in the background, and Kirk Cameron is blowing out his candle. And the caption of this was, this is a sad birthday for Kirk Cameron. I'm going, for me, this is an ideal birthday. I'm like, I'm getting food, and there's no one else there. <laughs> yes! 
Seriously, man, I try to be out of the country every year on my birthday. I, it's not a coincidence. I'm not a huge fan of birth, for my birthday. Anyway, kids are more, you give kids toys, it's great. For me, it's like I'm getting older. <laughs> you know, anyway, but I'm like, it's, I had to think about this. Why is this sad for him? Well, it's the secular media that's writing about this, and here's what their assumption is. Kirk Cameron was a child star, a heartthrob. I remember kids when I was in you know, elementary school, the girls, you know, you know. Teenage heartthrob, movie star, and he's all by himself for his birthday. That does not compute in the mind of the non-believer. He's an actor. He should want to have his entourage here. He should want to have the group of people holding things for him so he feels more important. And it's just him and a couple people having Subway. That's, that's so sad in the eyes of the world. Because our tendency is we want to worship ourselves. And God knows that when calamity strikes, it only gets worse. Really, I'm a geek. I watch a lot of weird things. Um, and, and again, I know this. When the world falls apart, we get self-worshipful and we get self-absorbed. And rightfully so. I mean, the world's falling apart. We've got to react to something. How many of you guys have seen Doomsday Preppers? It's a great show. <laughs> Your wife's not going to own up to it. Like, yeah, she, he made me watch it. And so... <laughs> I have to do the same thing with House Hunters. She made me watch that. I don't think. But anyway. But there seriously is a show about these people that are stockpiling like guns and butter in the basement. And they're like expecting to survive. And, and I'm watching this going, oh goodness. But here's the thing. All of them are totally self-absorbed about it. I am going to survive the end of the world. Whether that's a nuclear strike or this or that. I'm ready to survive. And if I like my family, they can survive with me too. You, you're up a crick. If you didn't stockpile guns and butter in your basement... We're out of luck. You know? Just saying. And it just dawns on me how self-focused that is. I'm all for preparing and being, you know, having my first aid kit and all that. I'm fine with that. But, but the tendency of us as human beings when calamity strikes is to be absolutely self-focused because our tendency on a good day is to be absolutely self-focused. And so the message of God to this community that is going through persecution, is take your eyes up. Yes, the imperial cult around you is demanding your conformity. Yes, there are Jewish leaders that are persecuting you. Yes, there is social opposition. Yes, there are all these things. Look up. That's where it is. Oh, hey, great quote, by the way. Again, from Grant Osborne. While we do not have an imperial cult today, we have something far more subtle and every bit as insidious, the cult of personality. And God comes to us and says, look up. Look at me. He's on the throne. And the elders and the four living creatures, they demonstrate for us what the proper response to God on the throne is. God is on the throne. Our response is worship. The four living creatures never stop singing. And it says the 24 elders, which as a staff member in a church, I'm going, great, there's consistory there too. <clears throat> but anyway, these 24 elders, it says they fall down. And again, I love going back to the Greek because, it, you know, for us, this is maybe our Dutch Reformed heritage, like for us to fall down is kind of a calculated thing where we gently get down on one knee and then slowly bow, and it's this kind of calculated thing so we don't, you know, hurt ourselves or in my case, someone else. Um, I'm just saying. But I love the Greek because it says the 24 elders collapsed themselves. It was like this involuntary response. 
Here is God. I'm on the ground. That is the proper response to who God is. In the middle of persecution, in the middle of calamity, he says, I'm on the throne. And our response is, and we will worship. Amen? It goes against every earthly, fleshly desire we have, but that is what God says to the persecuted church. That is what God says to you, believer in Jesus Christ, when calamity strikes. Let me draw just two more truths before I'm done. One more truth coming from the very last verse there, where it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will or your desire they existed and were created. The nature of God in this verse, in addition to being a reminder to us to look up and to worship him, for us in a more practical level, when the world falls apart around us, the third truth I want to bring out for you is this. God's nature provides our comfort. He is worthy of our praise, yes. Why? Because he can create, he controls, he is powerful, he's all-knowing. All of these things, all these parts of God's nature, they can serve for us to be the comfort when calamity strikes. I don't know you as a church body very well. But just because there's more than one of you here, I'm going to guess that if I were to poke around enough, there are stories of tremendous pain and tremendous difficulty that we could go through. And even if you don't have any, I have a bunch I could tell you. And I know that every time that I'm leveled by the situations of life and God brings me to my knees and I'm face down on the carpet in tears, the thing that sustains me is knowing who God is and what he can do to know that I don't have to fix it. All I need to do is be faithful and worship. And God's nature, therefore, provides for us the comfort in calamity. And one last truth, just to wrap things up, because I can't do three points. i got to do four. I mean, come on. I've got to do one more. Just as God's nature comforts us, last but not least, God's nature sustains our call. Because check it out. When the calamity struck, those seven churches, when persecution erupted, the mission of God was still in force, right? You know, the whole thing when Jesus like went up to heaven and said, hey, go make disciples of all nations, there wasn't a period where he says, pause, okay, deal with persecution, okay, go. In the middle of persecution, in the middle of calamity, the expectation of God for these seven churches and for us as a church, for us collectively and for us individually as believers, the expectation of God is that when calamity strikes, we continue to be a witness. We continue to advance the gospel. We continue to worship him. We continue to do what we do as the church. Whether the world outside around us is falling apart, whether our lives are falling apart, and the more we get focused in on God's nature, the more we can sustain that call to go, yes, my life is falling apart. Yes, our church is going through this. Yes, our community is going through something even worse. But God is still God. God is still on the throne. He still deserves our worship. And I need to tell you about it. I need to bring Jesus into this moment. Amen? That is the God we serve. And I just love that he didn't start with love. He started with, I'm God and you're not. And if you ever want to see this 
chapter and why this is important to us expounded in great detail, my friends, go to the book of Job. Because in that book, in that story, you see a righteous and godly man that God allowed Satan to test him by taking out his entire financial security. All in one swoop. All of his savings, as it were, gone. His children killed. I can't even think of that. And all of it was so that Job's character could be tested and revealed. The whole rest of the book of Job is Job and his three friends um, discussing why this is happening to Job. Job, by the way, had become so sick, he was sitting in an ash heap, scraping himself with pottery. Pleasant image, I know. And he was there. His life had fallen apart. His wife, the, the, um, the encourager that she was, said, curse God and die. I'm like, thanks, love. And he was just there, a wreck, scraping himself with pottery. His three friends are there trying to give him encouragement. And it's just terrible theology. And at the end of it all, God shows up, and he never gives Job the answer. Never. He doesn't say, good job, Job. Let me shake your hand. You passed the test. This is what I did. Read chapter 1 in your spare time. You'll understand it. He just shows up and says, I'm God. Where, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I made creation? Where were you when I made the beasts? Where were you when I did this? He basically said that he is God and Job is not. He is on the throne and we are not. And so for us, as the church today, our task is to keep God on the throne, keep his worship at the forefront, and keep going in mission the whole time, remembering he is God and what that means. Amen?